I hope that everybody had a Merry Christmas and you enjoyed time with your uh, family and friends. And I know that as you did that, you more than likely sat around a table and ate a, a shared a meal together. And so I'm just curious, what's your favorite, what's your favorite memory or your, your most interesting Christmas family meal story from this year? Or maybe years past, maybe it's grandma spilling an entire plate uh, or an entire dish of something in someone's lap. Maybe it's somebody uh, venturing off into topic discussions that they're not really supposed to talk about, that we agreed ahead of time we do not talk about politics. That would be me. Sorry, Paula. Why do, we, why do we share family meals together? Think about that. Why do we share meals together? We share them because there's something about sitting down and eating with people that we care about. I mean, think about it. When, when you're working and you bring lunch with you, a lot of times you may sit down with a coworker, but the meal is short. But when you, when you purposefully sit down at a table with someone, a lot of times it's someone that you care about or someone that you're trying to get to know. We share meals with people that are close to us and oftentimes with our family. Meals, in a way, unite us. No matter what's going on in the family, we come together and sit at the same table and eat the same food and enjoy each other's company. Right before Jesus was crucified, He instituted a meal for His people to enjoy together and to remember. To remember the sacrifice that He was about to make. And Jesus didn't just mean it for remembrance, but He meant it to bring His people together. He meant for the meal to unite us together in the same way that sitting around a table, a dinner table, unites us. And the thing that we're going to see in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the cross. But it also reminds us of how the cross unites us. It reminds us of the cross and how it unites us. Join with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. And I'm going to ask that you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word together. Hear the Word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not, for the, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, This is My body which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it tells us of our weakness. It tells us of our sin. It tells us of our rebellion, but at the same time, it tells us that there was one who was born among us. The perfect God-man. Lord, God in the flesh who dwelt among us and who died in our place. Father, we ask this morning that you would magnify Jesus. That's what we're here for. We're here today to magnify him, to remember him. And Lord, we we come as your people with with empty buckets. Lord, we we come as your people still struggling with sin. We come in this room today with so many burdens, so many things that we struggle with. And Lord, we come come back to the cross and, and fill our buckets, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we do that, and as we remember, Lord, that you would give each one of us grace. That we would remember that it's not our performance that gets us in. That we would remember that it is your grace that brings us to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. I think this passage tells us three things that the Lord's Supper is about. And the first thing that it is about is unity. Unity. Notice Paul, Paul starts out here talking about divisions in the church. But before we dive into those divisions, what is the Lord's Supper? Right? What, what, what is this down here? Why do we celebrate it? How did they celebrate it back then? And we need to be careful because there's actually a huge difference in the way they took the Lord's Supper back then and the way we take it now. Back in the time that that Paul is writing, the Lord's Supper was not just something that was a part of a worship service, but it was a meal that they shared together. Most likely, the early church, every time they came together, they ate. Good Baptist, right? I think we should do that. That'd be great. Every time they came together, they shared a meal. They saw themselves as family. And with that meal, they would take the Lord's Supper together. It was a meal that they shared together, and it was a meal that they shared every time they came together. 
And so the divisions that Paul is talking about came out pretty clearly. He tells of the divisions in the church and he criticizes them for how they are divided. You know, the Corinthian church is a divided church. As Paul opens his letter to them in chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Look, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and saying, you guys are divided. Some of you, right from the get-go of his letter, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. They were focused on these divisions. They were focused on these human things and they were not focused on what unites them together. Well, why does he bring that up in talking about the Lord's Supper? Notice what he says. He says, when they are divided like this, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. When you're divided like this, he's like, you can come together and you can have the elements there, but when, when a church is divided, it's not eating the Lord's Supper together. It may be passing around bread, it may be taking a drink of wine, but it's not the Lord's Supper. Why is Paul so so dead set on unity? Why does he say that? Is it just a good thing so churches can, can run smoothly? Not quite. The reason why Paul is so adamant that the church be unified is because the Gospel, listen, the Gospel is about reconciliation and peace with God. The, the main thing that we believe is reconciliation that we have been restored to God we who were once enemies and so the implication there is if we truly believe that gospel then that means that everything else God's people are going to be united we may the body of Christ may be made up of rich people poor people think of other things that divide people it may be made up of republicans and democrats the body of Christ is made up of white people, black people. It's made up of all of these groups of people and we are united together. And I want you to see what Paul says about this unity. He writes to another church, the church at Philippi, and he urges them to be united. And this is what he says. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Listen to what he says to the church. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Listen church, if we're in Christ, we share everything in common. We share the same Holy Spirit that indwells us. We share the same story that we were sinners and we found grace. 
that we were going our own way and somehow God found us. Paul continues writing to them and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. Look, each of you, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why does he say all of this? Why does he, he tell the church to be united? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He roots it in Jesus. And he points us to what Jesus has done. We're to be united together, listen church, because Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, church. If our master is all about selflessness and giving up and thinking of himself last, should we be the same way? Shouldn't we exude that selflessness? The Corinthian church was certainly not. They were certainly not exuding this. What was the situation going on there? Paul tells us that when it came to the, the meal that they shared together, that some people would go and eat their own meal and would become drunk. Now, don't get me wrong, drunkenness is a sin. I don't think Paul is necessarily hung up on drunkenness. I think Paul's issue here is that they are saying, this is my food and I'm going to eat while you have nothing. Think about it this way. When we have a potluck dinner at the church, we ask everyone to bring something, don't we? Well, what if there was someone in the church who was really poor and they really couldn't bring anything? Now, I know in you know, middle class America, we think, well, that's not possible. In that day, that was, that was the reality. The poor people really didn't get anything to eat. So what's happening in the meal is that the rich are coming in, the haves are coming in and leaving the have-nots away from the table. They're coming and they're eating until they're filled, until they're drunk. And what's going on here is they are divided along socioeconomical lines. They're saying, we're the haves, you're the have-nots, we're better than you, we're going to eat more than you. And you just sit over there and you don't really get anything. Does that tell truth about Christ or lies about Christ? And here's the reality. It may not be socioeconomical lines for us. It may be other lines. Maybe somebody that, that looks a little different from us. That dresses differently. That maybe has tattoos. Somebody that, that, that they're not quite like us. The way that we treat them will either say truth about Christ or lies. And listen, church, when we're not unified together, we're telling lies about Jesus. 
Like I said earlier, if we're in Christ, we have everything in common. The same spirit, the same baptism, the same story, the same destiny. And so what that means by implication is we have more in common, listen, with a Middle Eastern Christian. I'm talking the people that we do not like politically. We have more in common with a Middle Easterner who comes to Christ than we do with our own family members that are not in Christ. That's radical unity. That's that's how radical the cross is. It can take people that are so different and bring them together. That means we have more in common with the people who are not from around here if they're in Christ. More so than our closest friends who are not in Christ. This means that we have more in common with African American believers than we do with white people who are heathens. The the cross tears down all of those lines. It does away with all this and it unites people together. Think about it, church. We're so obsessed with having people in the church that look like us, that think like us. Maybe God wants to make His church where we are diverse like it is going to be in heaven. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It it, it pronounces that the church is unified by the cross. And unlike the Corinthian church, we need to be united. We need to be united. And as we approach the table, I ask that question, are we united? And I'm not, I'm not asking, is the church running smoothly? I'm not asking, is the, is every, do we have big fights in our business meetings? Because we don't have that. Praise God, we don't have that. But the question I'm asking is, on an individual level, are there people that you need to extend your forgiveness to? Are there people in the body that you need to go to and ask forgiveness from? Is there someone that you have wronged in the body? Is there someone that You know, I just don't quite see eye to eye with that person. Listen, the cross brings us together. The cross brings us together and unites us. And the Lord's Supper proclaims that. It proclaims that we are united. That's why uh, we call it the Lord's Supper, but many other denominations call it communion, as in togetherness. We do this in communion together. The Lord's Supper is for unity. And the second thing that he tells us is the Lord's Supper is for remembrance. It's for remembrance. What's your favorite holiday traditions? I mean, just just take a second and think about that. What's your favorite tradition? Maybe around Thanksgiving, around Christmas, New Year's. One thing that uh, Brittany's family, and and I, I probably should have thought more about this since they're here this morning, but... One thing that, that, that I married into is their tradition is around Christmas time, they give ornaments to go on the tree. And, and, and to be honest with you, when Brittany and I first started dating and I got an ornament, I'm like, what's this? Why are you giving me an ornament? Like, 
Is this kind of is this a gag gift? Are you serious? But what I've learned through the years is these ornaments I actually treasure. You know, for each milestone, they you know they'll give a different ornament. Like when Brittany and I got married, they gave us an ornament to commemorate that. And you know, whatever if there was a movie that came out that was our favorite movie, they they would give an ornament for that. And these things mean something. And they actually remind me, I don't know about for the rest of the family, but they remind me that Christmas is not about the gift giving. And I know that it's about remembering Christ, but Christmas is also about the family that we have together and remembering the closeness that we have. What's your favorite tradition? I've heard of others, uh, you know, other family members, they, they have a tradition of you know, getting in their pajamas on Christmas morning, even though they're all full-grown college kids, you know, getting in their pajamas and, and scampering downstairs and opening gifts. You know, the thing about traditions is they are meant to point us back to something. Whether it be the ornaments pointing us back to family, whether it be the getting in the pajamas and, and scampering downstairs to point us back to a time when we were little children and we could not wait to see what Santa was going to bring us. Traditions point us back to something. And they have meaning. And so what we see here is the Lord's Supper is a tradition that is meant to remember something. Jesus Himself instituted. This was not something that the apostles thought, well, it'd be a good idea if we did this. No, Jesus started this. And notice where Paul goes next. He, he talks about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, and he says, um, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's saying, hey, I didn't make this up. I, I, this is what I got from Jesus, and I'm giving it to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is telling us, this is my body. This is symbolic of my body that is torn for you. He takes the cup and he says, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. And, and listen, all throughout the Bible, when we see covenants being instituted, there's always a sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the sacrifice to bring this new covenant about. I'm going to be sacrificed for you on your behalf. But why does he say that we do this? Both times when he gives the bread, when he gives the cup, he says, in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. We need to remember why Christ died. He died for us. We need to remember. He died for us while we were running our own way. He died for us while we thought we had life figured out while we were living in the world. He died for me while we were still looking for love in all the wrong places. 
He died for us while we were still slaves to alcohol and drugs. He died for us while we were in bondage to pornography and sexual immorality. He died for us while we were without hope and without God. We remember who we once were and how He found us. We remember that we were going our own way and we, He found us when we weren't even looking for Him. We remember what He has done for us on the cross. And believers, listen, this is, that's what we once were. We were enemies of God. We were living our own way on a pathway to destruction. And listen, if you're in the room this morning and you're not a Christian, that's where you are now. But, you don't have to stay there. You can, you can flee and cling to Christ and He will have you. And you cannot out His ability to forgive. And listen, I don't care what past you come from. I don't care how bad you think you are. You are not too bad for Him to rescue you. And He will gladly take you and transform you. He will meet you where you are. But there might be people in the room who you say, you know, I'm a Christian. I've embraced Christ. I'm following Christ. And I'm still, I'm still struggling with some of these things. You know, it's really hard when we talk about how we once were in bondage to these things. And some of us, if we're honest, we still struggle with those things. Sometimes it's hard for us to, to keep our eyes where they ought to be. Sometimes it's hard for us not to indulge in the things that we used to indulge in. Sometimes it's hard for us not to try to run our own way and forget about God. And if that's you this morning, let me just say this. This is not who you are anymore. If you're in Christ, your sin does not define you anymore as it once did. But the question then is this. If Christ brought you deliverance, if He changed your identity, then why are you still living? Why are you turning back to the things that once held you in bondage? Why are you turning away to things that can never satisfy you? You're not identified by sin anymore, so stop living in it. And if that's you this morning, you're not going to do that cold turkey. You can only do that by asking for His help. By the Holy Spirit coming and helping you to do that. That is the way that we fight sin. That's the way that we pursue holiness. At the table, we remember that Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. to forgive us, to reconcile us to God. In remembering something, we don't just stop with remembering, but remembering also leads to proclamation. As we remember the death of Jesus, notice what Paul says next in verse 26. He tells us, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I love it. He's saying... 
in our remembrance of Jesus in doing these things, we are actually proclaiming to each other and to the world the things that we believe about Jesus. It is a proclamation. And, and a lot of times we think as the, of the Lord's Supper as a look into the past, but actually the, the Lord's Supper is also forward-looking. Notice it says, until He comes. In other words, the Supper is not just saying, Lord, we remember what You've done. It's us saying, Lord, we are looking forward to when You return and we are going to proclaim until You get back the excellencies of the Gospel. It is forward-looking and it is for proclaiming to the world. Finally, the Lord's Supper is for examination. The Lord's Supper is for unity, it's for remembrance, and finally it's for examination. Notice what he says, and, and, and this, this last section of the, of the passage that we read is, is very difficult. It's very difficult. Look at what he says. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Here's a very simple question that I want to ask. What does it mean to take it in an unworthy manner? Well, he actually tells us in verse 29, he describes an unworthy manner as anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ. He describes an attitude. Now, now this is where it gets tricky because I was brought up being taught, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you were, that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you better examine yourself. You better look at your performance over the last few weeks, over the last week. And if you come to that table when you haven't been you know, performing your best with the Lord, then you better ask for His forgiveness now or He's going to get you. That's what I was taught. I was taught, man, if there's any, any sin in, in the last week, in the last two weeks, boy, you better ask for forgiveness right now because if you take that bread and that cup, you, He's going to get you. That it's all based on performance. And that's not what it is. And listen, logically, let's just think this out. If it was about performance, if, if you taking the Lord's Supper was about your performance, then that nullifies the meaning of the Supper. Because listen, we don't perform our way to get in. We don't perform our way to earn His favor. Rather, we just come and throw ourselves on His grace at the cross and He receives us. And so listen church, as we take the supper, you may feel unworthy and let me tell you, you are. There's not a single one of us in this room who is worthy to take this supper. And it's not about our performance, but it is about our attitude. Our attitude do I have an attitude of reflection on what Christ has done? But it's not just about our attitude toward Christ, it's our attitude toward each other. That's the whole point of the unity piece. How can we take the supper if our attitude towards one another is bad? How can we take the supper if we have an unchristlike attitude towards each other. And he gives a very strong warning against this. He says, whoever 
Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen, when we take the supper in an unworthy attitude, not discerning the body, not remembering with an attitude towards one another that is not Christ-like and not unifying. Listen, God will hold us accountable for that. This is serious to Him. That we remember and that we reflect the gospel to each other. Remember, the meal was taken every time the church gathered. For us, the Lord's Supper is not just simply, well, you better... You better get your attitude right before we take the Lord's Supper in three months. For the early church, it was, hey, we're meeting in a few days, and this was a constant reminder to everyone that we should behave in a Christ-like manner toward each other. And listen, it's the same for us. It's not just when the Lord's Supper is being given, but we should always, always ask ourselves, is my attitude towards my fellow brothers and sisters Christ-like? Does it honor Him? And we should realize that we don't do that just because it's a nice thing to do. We do it because we know that He's going to hold us accountable if we don't. I see people all the time that they come in church, and I've seen it with my own two eyes, folks. People that come into a church and divide it. And my thought towards them is not, why are you dividing the church? That's bad. My thought is, do you not fear the Lord? Do you not know that you're going to give an account to Him one day? And so, listen, our relationships to one another are not just laid back and, you know, well, it's not... No, we got to answer for that one day. And so before we have a bad attitude towards each other, we need to realize that one day we will answer for it to Christ. And so, what does He say? He says, let a person examine himself. This is what Paul's saying. Hey, don't wait for God to hold you accountable. Don't, don't wait for God to, to step in and hold you accountable. Examine yourself now. Look at your attitude now. Look at your relationships now. And repent. And seek unity with one another. Let a person examine himself, he says. Am I reflecting and depending on what Christ has done? Am I at odds with other believers? Am I withholding forgiveness? Am I holding on to a grudge? Do I need to ask someone for forgiveness? The Lord's Supper is for unity. The Lord's Supper is for remembrance. The Lord's Supper is for examination. And it reminds us of the cross. And it reminds us of how the cross unites us. In just a moment, we're going to transition to a time where we take the supper. Kind of be awkward to give a sermon on the Lord's Supper and not actually take it. We're going to do things a little differently today. As we prepare to take the table, instead of, you know, normally we just maybe have a moment of quiet reflection. Today we're going to sing because I want us together to proclaim what Christ has done. And I want us in singing to remember what He has done. And this is a time for you, if you're, if you're here this morning and you, you're not a believer, this is a time where you can come, I'll be right here down front, you can come and 
uh, and ask questions, you can come and receive Christ. And this is a time for each one of you, maybe if there's somebody you need to get up and move across the room while we sing and ask for their forgiveness, maybe this is the time for that. It's a time for examining. It's a time for reflection. So let's sing together.